so I've uh, got backups on my AV, I got my microphone, I've got like three different clickers up here, and I got my water. So hopefully we'll get through the next 50 minutes um, uneventfully and with some increased education about the microbiome. So uh, thank you for coming. I know it's a little bit early. Um, you've had two lectures, I think, that have preceded this, so hopefully you're a little bit more awake now. Uh, how many of you first time to Pain Week? Oh, that's so awesome. Isn't it funny they're all like on this side of the room? Because <laughs> I guess it's the first set of chairs. They don't know that there's more over here. So uh, I was really privileged uh, to be asked to uh, speak on a topic that's been of interest uh, to me probably for the last three or four years, and, and I'll share with you why as we get farther into the lecture. But um, it's, it's new, it's um, kind of up-to-date, uh, cutting-edge research, and hopefully, even if we don't have any specific clinical applications and you don't get a specific probiotic uh, by name, that um, I can recommend to you that you can take back to your clinic tomorrow to use in practice. It'll give you an idea of kind of the global scope of uh, the microbiome health and pain management, and it will uh, tickle your mind to continue to uh, read and, and watch what's coming down the pike. And I thought it was a very clever title, and I was really sad that I didn't get a poster. So on your evaluations. <laughs> this would have been a great title for a poster. Here are my disclosures, nothing that has anything to do with today's uh, lecture. So our um, objectives are to define the microbiome for you. Uh, we're going to talk about the uh, gut-brain axis and how that feeds into pain management and overall health. We're going to talk about the uh, importance of the microbiome, the health of the microbiome in pain modulation. So it's always fun to start with like a trivial pursuit kind of, you know, fun facts. Um, so we'll see how many of these that you knew of and that you, you could get right so the uh, microbiome is really uh, defined as a group of microorganisms, so not just bacteria, but protozoa, fungi, um, that inhabit the whole GI um, tract. Uh, the genetic makeup of the microbiome uh, overall is, um, supersedes the genetic makeup of our human cells. So if you take all of those genes involved in the microbiome and the bacteria and the um, the little critters in the microbiome, and you put them in a very large Petri dish, you would have about the size of the human brain, believe it or not, right? And these are complete uh, overgoing a transition, replication, change, but for the most part, um, this is what's sitting in your gut. So when you were waking up this morning and you were thinking about breakfast and you were sitting at breakfast and you were satiated and you were sitting there all nice and, and satisfied, um, your microbiome was at work uh, and it was growing as you were sitting there. The uh, microbiome is essential, not only to pain modulation, but to human development, to immunity, to physical and mental wellness overall. And uh, even though within the first few months of life, your microbiome is set, um, what's he doing going behind that screen? Then, uh, but you can, you can change your microbiome with every meal, right? And um, stress also plays a, a role in that. But for the most part, the microbiome that you're set with the first few months of life is what you take with you to the grave. The microbiome uh, was um, known prior to the 1990s, but it really wasn't the functioning of the microbiome and how it affected mental health, wellness, uh, and pain modulation until about the 1990s. So this is all new science. We continue to learn more and more. And um, as scientists continue to look at the microbiome at more of a cellular level, we're really recognizing the role it plays in diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, MS, and uh, fibromyalgia. 
there's a direct correlation, and hopefully if you take nothing out of this lecture today, you'll have an understanding not only of the microbiome, the, an elementary, no pun intended, um, understanding of the microbiome, but you'll understand, did you get that joke? But you'll also understand how a dysbiosis or an abnormality of the microbiome um, puts at, at, us at risk for stress, uh, depression, and pain. So this is my take home. You know, my friends come to me, how, how do I feel better? What do I do? What do I need to do to feel better? And I just say, you know, y'all need to just eat your fruits and vegetables, and you need to get good sleep, and you need to exercise, and you'll have a good life. So many basic known principles to us um, will be familiar to you. And um, I'll contrast this with uh, some newer principles. So I think we would all agree that a low inflammatory, low allergenic, high fiber diet is good, right? We don't always adhere to that, particularly when we're you know, a week away from work and we're in Vegas and, and we're having a good time and we're drinking too much. But uh, for the most part, you know, we live a life that we try and pay attention to these principles. Balance of good bacteria and pathogenic bacteria is favorable. Right? So we know that we have bacteria that lines our gut. We know that. And it's the interplay of the good bacteria and the bad bacteria that really uh, keep the homeostatic balance. Overuse of antibiotics, right? We've talked about this um, for decades. And overuse of antibiotics puts, it, puts us at higher risk for um, changing that balance of good and pathogenic bacteria. It keeps going behind the screen. What's going on there? The importance of breastfeeding um, in immunity, right? So we counsel uh, women. So didn't I say when I first started this lecture, I got my two microphones, I got my five. <laughs> so we're going to have no AV problems, but I don't, I don't know what's going on with the lights here. All right, you're throwing me, guys. Come on. Oh, could you not see in the back of the room? All right. Uh, dysbiosis. So how many um, of you in this room understand what dysbiosis is or have heard the term dysbiosis? A few. How many in this room have heard the term or know, um, the, have an understanding of the term leaky gut? Much more of you, right? They're synonymous. They're synonymous. So, so you learned something today that you didn't know, but you already knew. The uh, gut-brain axis, we, we've understood a very basic, simplistic understanding, again, for decades now. The newer principles, um, and this is what we'll elaborate more on today, is the understanding of how the immune system plays into pain management more at the gut-brain axis level, how um, stool and serotonin um, are interrelated, and the importance of the glial cell in proper gut um, modulation, and again, the health of this uh, gut-brain axis. The enteric nervous system um, is referred to as the second brain. And again, when we talk about how they talk to each other, you'll understand that more in depth. The use of any antibiotics is going to alter. And so that also includes antibiotics maybe that are in the food that you eat. So antibiotics that you don't take necessarily directly um, for a medical ailment, but the antibiotics that's in the food um, or the water or anything that you consume will have an effect on your microbiome. Infant development, and really these talks, I think, need to be had um, to prenatal clinicians, uh, to obstetricians, uh, and even to pediatricians, because it's really important, I think, to think about the health of the microbiome of the individual even before they are born, right? Because I shared with you the fact that the microbiome, for like 95% of it, is set within the first few months of life as the infant is developing the uh, immunity as given to it by its mother. 
We can change that, right? But we have to change. It's transient, our changing of the microbiome and the improvement of the microbiome, if, if we need to uh, do that for health and wellness, is transient. But we can make um, a, a change into an already set system. So not only the importance of breastfeeding for uh, immunity development for those first, uh, first few months of life, but vaginal delivery is very important, right? So I don't know so much anymore because I don't practice in that area, but there was a period of time, decades, where um, women were being encouraged to have C-sections, right, for whatever reason. So they were forgoing that vaginal birth. And that first trip through the vaginal canal is where the infant is exposed to the mother's microbiome, right? So that's really where they start to cultivate their microbiome. So really important. Um, we'll talk a little bit about prebiotics, probiotics, psychobiotics, which is probably a new term to you, and, uh, and a better understanding of the intricacies and at the biochemical level, how the gut and the brain work together. So I got um, interested in this topic when I heard a lecture in 2017 by Heather Tick. So Heather Tick gave a similar lecture to this two years ago at this conference, and I was just jaw-smacked. I just thought, wow, that is something that I hadn't ever thought about before. Now, her lecture was obviously different, but, um, and I went more into the science of it in this lecture, but it was just a fascinating topic to me. And she said, whenever we eat a meal, we either increase or decrease inflammation, changing the microbiome for a period of time, and when you increase inflammation, it leads to increased pain. And I think I knew that fundamentally. I do a lot of lecturing on fibromyalgia. I know how uh, anti-inflammatory diets are, are preferred. But I really didn't think of it on the global kind of spectrum of pain management. So what I did, so that was 17, 2007, excuse me, that was September 2017. So then in December, so a few months later, my family and I went and took a trip to Portland, Oregon. Anybody from the Pacific Northwest? Uh, anybody from Portland? What's the um, famous bookstore downtown Portland? Powell's, right? So I went into Powell's for two reasons. One, because it was my favorite bookstore, and two, because there's no sales tax in Oregon. So I'm like, I'm going there. It was even better priced than Amazon. And I bought all I could um, find on the microbiome, this whole topic. And this was by far my favorite book. And I have no royalties in this, and I'm not getting paid by anybody. And actually, when I've given this lecture in the past, I've had a copy of the book. And you can see how I've, it's like a, an old college textbook where I've underlined things and I've put lots of sticky pads on it. And I used to pass it out to the audience to take a look at. Well, the last time I did that, I never got it back. So I thought that was probably a good thing because they really needed to read about that nonetheless. So I have to go back up to Portland next this Christmas and get another book. Um, it's fascinating. It's an easy read. Uh, you can almost sit down on a long plane ride to Europe and read the entire book. And it's, a, again, a lot of um, innovative, cutting-edge information um, and a lot of food for thought. Again, no pun intended. The uh, bacteria are controlled by your brain. Right? So it's not as simple as that, but really this book um, brought to light the understanding or, the, or the, I, the concept that bacteria from your gut can actually get up into the brain. And what does that mean for health and wellness and this whole concept of um, uh, psychobiotics, right? So how bacteria influence uh, mental health. Because we've talked about the gut and the microbiome 
for a period of time now about just overall health and wellness and a little bit about pain, but we've never talked about how the gut influences depression and anxiety, and we know that depression and anxiety are directly related to how we manage uh, chronic pain. So this, this term, psychobiotic, was uh, coined in this book uh, by one of the authors. So um, in essence, I'll give you um, the, the two-second lecture on what this book's about if you choose not to buy it. Microbiomes improve mood. Um, psychobiotics uh, are, is the term that was coined. Psychobiotics are major players in the gut-brain axis. Um, there's importance of uh, gut function in all the food that we eat, and that also directs to uh, mental well-being. Bacteria in the gut secrete and respond to dopamine, right? And serotonin as well as GABA, all feel-good chemicals, uh, all important for pain modulation. Every cell in the GI tract can trigger an immune response, right? They release cytokines, um, and they can activate microglia, and I'll show you more in-depth uh, research on that, and um, really goes into uh, some of the new cutting-edge science on the gut-brain axis, mostly in animal models. So these next two um, slides, the pictures are taken directly from the book with permission. I didn't have to pay, but they didn't pay me to show them either. So um, hopefully you can see it in the back of the room. It's blown up pretty nicely. The gut microbiota communicates with the central nervous system, um, the brain, through three um, uh, ways. Through the nervous system, through the immune system, and through the endocrine system. And the pictorial is a little bit complicated, but I think it gives kind of a nice um, understanding of where it starts and then, and then how it ascends up to the brain. Um, and then I think the next slide will show you the, the feedback loop. So how when the sensation of what is going on in the gut um, reaches the brain and you get the release of the chemicals that we talked about, then that activates um, more of what's going on in the gut. So through the nervous system, using neurotransmitters via the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is a very important communicator between the gut and the, uh, and the brain. Through uh, cytokinine release uh, in the bloodstream via the immune system. And then using hormones such as the release of cortisol via the bloodstream. So this doesn't really so much show you the, bi the feedback loop, but what it does show you is a picture written at the cellular level of um, the lining of the gut and uh, what a healthy gut looks like. So a healthy um, gut with a multitude of um, various bacteria, right? So one of the problems with having a singular set of bacteria that are homogeneous is that you, you, you put a patient at higher risk for the overgrowth of um, things like uh, other uh, pathogenic bacteria, uh, fungi, uh, other things that really aren't um, uh, helpful in terms of a, a healthy microbiome and uh, mental health, wellness, and uh, pain man management. So a, dis uh, a dysbiotic gut lets pathogens um, through the gut lining. So what happens when you have pathogenic bacteria at the lining of the gut? You get a, um, a junction um, in the gut tract that is um, dysbiotic is leaky, right? So that's where that term leaky gut comes from. And when you have a leaky gut or you've got, well, I'm getting a call. When you have a leaky gut, then you have an opening where you can get an infusion into the bloodstream of um, food particles, of the pathogenic bacteria. 
And it's thought that at this level is where you get a development of um, things like food allergies. You get a um, huge inflammatory response that develops. And even if this is at a very low um, preclinical level, then over time, this is what leads to the inflammatory diseases, diagnoses like rheumatoid arthritis that we talked about. Okay. So again, just um, a better picture uh, dis describing this. So intestinal, uh, intestinal lining, when it's healthy, it, um, is, there's tight junctions um, that are there in the mucus layer and all of the other layers. What is in the gut stays in the gut, right? Gets metabolized, gets excreted. The negative uh, chemicals and um, processes work properly. Um, it prevents water loss, electrolytes, nutrients. They stay in the little tubes that they're supposed to. And it prevents the entry of these uh, antigens, as talked about, food particles uh, into the bloodstream. So in order to achieve an um, intact gut lining, to decrease uh, dysbiosis, to decrease leaky gut, these are some of the things that you want to think about when you're counseling with your patients, right? So the use of uh, prebiotic nutrients. So prebiotics are those nutrients that feed your, your bacteria, your healthy bacteria, right? So different than probiotics. So these are the things that you find in your fibers, in your fruits and vegetables. So the little microorganisms in your gut need to be fed, right, to be healthy, to continue to do the things that they need to do, um, just like uh, anything else. So the concept of, of utilizing prebiotics or food for your bacteria, um, again, a relatively new concept, but uh, one that scientists are, uh, are looking at more and more these days. So short-chain fatty acids. Um, listed there for you, uh, plant-derived flavonoids, vitamins, um, probiotics. So what happens when all of this goes awry or you don't have the adequate nutrition, uh, stress reduction, activity level to keep everything in balance? You get the uh, microbiota that is unbalanced, um, increase in the intestinal permeability, uh, an increase in the immune response, as I talked about, with food particles that enter the bloodstream, as an example. Um, the immune response then, over time, either can respond in a, result in a, in a monumental display um, of disease and dysfunction, or again, chronically at low level over time, and then develop into things like RA and, and these other autoimmune diseases that we talked about. So these are some of the pathogenic factors, including uh, the pathogens themselves, that we're concerned about that actually lead to this increase in intestinal uh, permeability and uh, result in a chronic leaky gut or dysbiotic situation. So all of your um, bacteria is there, rotavirus, shigella, high-fat Western diet. This is all pretty... I think straightforward. I think these are all concepts that you know, right? We talk about just, again, about health and wellness, the importance of a, um, a moderate diet, um, healthy weight, um, sleep, exercise, and uh, good foods. The, um, the use of NSAIDs and uh, PPIs was interesting to me, right? You get the double whammy. So we talk a lot about utilizing uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories um, in inflammatory pain or or osteoarthritis and such. So what is the first thing that you do when you recommend a chronic um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory? You recommend a PPI to go with that, right? So the double whammy of the both are um, devastating in terms of creating 
uh, dysbiotic situation and allowing for a leaky gut um, scenario. All right, so basic chemistry of uh, microbiology and nutrition from a non-scientist, uh, the use of uh, short-chain fatty acids, chemicals that, and foods that contain a lot of short-chain fatty acids as well as long-chain fatty acids um, have anti-inflammatory effects on the gut, vital for the um, healthy communication of the gut and the brain. They regulate immune function um, and suppress the inflammatory mediators that uh, will uh, result in uh, illness. So the microbiome, uh, the immune system, and inflammation. So dysbiosis, again, we, we talked about AKA leaky gut, is a direct um, definition, an increase in the permeability of the intestinal wall. And that can either be acute or chronic, more often chronic. And this is what is thought to lead to these um, diagnoses uh, of pain that we talked about, even fibromyalgia. There was an interesting study that was published in 2016 uh, at the Mayo Clinic looking at a specific um, species of bacteria that was uh, found um, in mice models to uh, prevent or reverse uh, osteoarthritis in multiple sclerosis, and that was uh, Prevotella histica, histolytica. So this is a bacteria that was found um, once the diagnosis was made in these mice models uh, to help uh, be protective uh, against the uh, diseases. So these are uh, nutrients and foods that um, are high in uh, short-chain fatty acids, high in long-chain fatty acids that are helpful and thought to be um, uh, preventative uh, to some degree in uh, reversing or uh, preventing uh, dysbiosis. Not entirely, not in, um, by themselves, but again, can help in your counseling with your patients. So the three main um, concerns that I have when I'm talking to patients about nutrition and health of the microbiome is the um, utility of gluten in their diet, dairy in their diet, and then saturated uh, fats. Um, gluten by far being the most problematic, and I'll show you some, uh, an interesting study that was uh, done or an abstract that was presented at American Academy of Neurology. So gluten, even in a non-celiac disease patient, can be very um, impactful on pain, um, pain presentation. So even at low levels, folks that um, have no markers for gluten sensitivity, gluten over time will have at a biochemical level a impact on neuropathic pain. So it is uh, immunogenic uh, by nature. It is, and so I'm not, I'm not advocating that you talk to your patients about going gluten-free, right? I mean, that's overkill. That's very difficult. Um, most people are not going to be able to be uh, compliant with that. But to be mindful of the gluten that you take into your body and try and reduce as much as possible. And I've got a um, compliant audience, right? You're all healthcare providers. You're all interested in, in health, well-being, the microbiome, or you wouldn't be here this early in the morning. I challenge you to do a six-week trial on your own. So think about the gluten that you're taking in. And this can happen after you leave Las Vegas. <laughs> but for the next six weeks, think about the gluten that you're taking into your body and try and reduce it by 50%. And pay attention to how you feel, right? Do you sleep better? Do you have better me mental clarity? Do you just feel better? 
right? Because if you do it, you're going to be a lot more. Um, you're going to be a lot more um, bought in to advocating this with your patients. So this is just a pictorial looking at the difference between um, proteins that are animal-based versus uh, uh, plant-based, and you see there just the effects on. The, um, the, the good bacteria, the health of the microbiome versus a detrimental and how that leads to diseases such as diabetes, inflammatory uh, bowel disease, cardiovascular disease. All right, let's talk about the glial cell. So the mighty glial cell. Can we live without our glial cells? No. So the glial cell is uh, a, uh, a cell that is um, very hot in pain research right now. We have a lab at Stanford, it's uh, the Tofik lab, that spends all of its time just looking at the health and the modulation of the glial cell uh, in pain management. So uh, micro microglia are immune cells um, of the central nervous system. They, are, they play a role in persistent pain. They play a role, their major role is in, um, in uh, in the function of the nervous system. So it helps nerves fire, right? So the, the activity of the glial cell is integral in terms of nerve firing, right? And our nerves need to fire in order to have a healthy nervous system. And when they work well, and they do their job, and then they are broken down after they do their job, and they're degraded, and then, and then re you know, reborn, if you will, then all goes well. But if you have a um, situation where your uh, glial cells don't break down, they become abnormal, they don't work the way they're supposed to, they keep active in neuronal firing, right? And you can see directly how that plays into pain, right? So what is the, what is the key um, indicators for neuropathic pain? It's a continued firing of the neurons in the nervous system for whatever reason. You know, they're injured or, you know, they're, they're compromised or whatever. So you can see it's very important that we regulate the microglia appropriately. And this, this is done directly in the gut. So um, the glial cells and um, all of the chemicals that keep the glial cells healthy and functioning properly start in the gut. So the glial cell's homeostasis is regulated by the microbiome. The health of the microbiome relies on the proper functioning of the intestinal micro microglia network. So again, it's a, a feedback loop. So if the microbiome is not functioning properly, you've got dysbiosis, then you, it can't take care of glial cell functioning. Glial cells get irritated, they keep firing, and again, it's a, it's a negative feedback loop. So maintenance of a, the barrier integrity is, is protective. It regulates neuronal activity, as talked about, uh, mucus secretion, immunity, GI motility. Um, it defends against the intestinal, uh, it defends the intestinal mucosa against pathogens, so it's protective there. And the glial cells respond to and produce cytokinines and chemokinines, that, which are important for proper um, functioning. Okay, so that's, I talked about that. All right, so neuroplasticity and uh, microglia activation had been shown to um, regulate, be regulated by the microbiota, and there's some um, references for you there to refer back to. The microbiome has effects on the amygdala. So 
it's a, 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 a cell of the central nervous system. And so it has direct effects on the uh, amygdala as well, uh, which is, a, as you know, being you know, pain management clinicians, it's another key stress and pain-related region of the brain. It's a region of the brain where we see um, emotional learning and social behavior, all important for pain modulation, uh, the gate region of behavioral and psychological responses in the brain, and modulates um, experience of anxiety, fear, and learned behavior. So these are two interesting studies. Again, the references are there for you, or they're definitely, you've got a full uh, reference list at the uh, end of your um, slide deck. 2004, 2016, both looked at germ-free mice. And if you're going to have a, a mouse in your lab, it might as well be germ-free. And um, what they did uh, in the 2004 study is they um, stressed it out. So they had it run on a treadmill for hours and hours and hours. They, whatever they did, they poked it with needles. They stressed it out. And then what they found is they, can, they colonized the stressed out animal with a bacteria, a, a bifidiobacteria, and found that the stress response reversed. Not entirely, but it reversed enough that, the, that there was a homeostatic um, realization in this mouse model. 2016, what they did is that they uh, took germ-free mice, they colonized it with the lactobacillus, and they showed an, an increase in the release of dopamine and serotonin. Again, feel-good chemicals important for pain modulation. So again, these are mice models. Uh, nonetheless, we always start um, with mice models after we take it out of the test tubes. Let's talk about visceral pain. Visceral pain, one of the most challenging pains to manage. So if you have that patient in your office, you see that patient in your hospital setting that um, has a, just this vague abdominal pain, um, it can be very challenging, particularly if you've run all the tests and you really don't have an idea um, about you know, any organ damage per se. And these patients get um, diagnosed with irritable bowel or functional abdominal pain, and uh, usually they continue to have a revolving door in and out of your hospital. <clears throat> so visceral pain is, is a result of a distension or stress, ischemia, inflammation in the, in the abdominal cavity or in the trunk. Um, and what has been proposed by some researchers that, um, that there's, an, an, in these individuals or in a subset of these individuals, that there was an alteration um, in the microbiome early in life. Again, I talked about how important it is really to start counseling our colleagues um, that take care of, of children or um, women of childbearing years about the importance of not only healthy microbiome in them, but then the, the cultivation of a good microbiome in children growing up. And um, it would be interesting to be able to follow folks over a period of time and see what their microbiome was like at infancy and then as they developed, and did they go on to develop this chronic abdominal pain. So it's really important to, to pay attention uh, to the microbiome early on in life. All right. So alterations of the microbiome in visceral pain disorders. So um, IBS, as characterized by chronic abdominal pain, we talked about. There's growing evidence that suggests irritable bowel is, uh, is related in part to a dysbiotic microbiome. And uh, alter, uh, alterations in the microbiome and uh, visceral pain responses in animal models has been demonstrated. 
I'm going to share two such studies with you. So um, this is one. They're very similar, um, but they were replicated, which is you know, something that we like to see. If we replicate studies that we get similar um, outcomes, it just gives us more confidence that that's true. So this study was reported in 2016. And what they did is they took um, healthy rats. So we uh, graduated from mice to rats. They were also germ-free. And um, what they did is they uh, colonized the GI tract with the lactobacillus uh, bacteria, and then they anesthetized the rats because, you know, we're humane people. And then they distended their little colons to 80 millimeters of mercury. And what they did is they measured heart rate, right? So it, your heart rate's obviously going to go up if you're in distress or you're in pain. And uh, they measured the, um, the discharge from the dorsal root ganglion. And what they found was that in the mice, oh, and they compared it to control, right? So they had other little mice that they didn't colonize with the bacteria. And um, looking at the mice that were given the bacteria, they had significantly decreased um, discharge, electrical discharge at the dorsal root ganglion and on um, distension. And uh, oral administration of either live or killed uh, probiotic uh, bacteria inhibited the um, increase in the uh, cardiovascular response. All right, and this is a similar study done three years later um, that shows, again, similar results. Um, so uh, my, uh, rats were colonized with lactobacillus. They uh, distended their little colons, and they found that um, the, uh, the colorectal distension decreased the threshold action potential, um, and uh, there was an um, increased number of spikes on discharge in the animals that uh, had not been colonized with the bacteria. Uh, probiotic uh, ingestion may have interfered hypothetically with the mechanism that blocks the effects of the um, colorectal distension uh, and action potential and pain response. So this is a fun um, study that I came across when I was putting, get, putting together this lecture. Again, uh, published in 2017, it looked at about 40 healthy volunteers, and it gave them a battery of studies to, and uh, evaluations to fill out. So typical stool form, the Bristol stool form scale, body mass index, um, some uh, pain scales, and then also some uh, behavioral management psychological scales. And what they found was um, higher pain intensity, right, on the scales that were um, filled out, and anxiety correlated with looser, more watery stools, um, indicative of dysbiosis. They found that there was higher uh, body mass index, um, was correlated with higher anxiety, depression, catastrophizing, higher pain scores also, uh, as, uh, as well. So... Um, Additional discussion by the authors was that the uh, BSFS score was correlated with dysbiosis, that the lack of healthy mi uh, microbiome, the richest of the gut bacteria, um, was, uh, was found. Higher BMIs were associated with the lack of healthy and diverse microbiome, and that obesity was a risk factor for pain and relationship between obesity and pain uh, intensity. And I think that's been um, shown out in, in other studies, uh, in other forums as well. Basics of nutrition, healthy weight. We talked about this earlier when we started the lecture. Healthy weight, low inflammatory diets, low uh, allergenic diets, stress reduction, all of these things that, that we try and um, adhere to in our daily lives because we want to counsel and, and direct our patients to healthy behaviors. Um, and it's, it, it's pretty automatic. I mean, it's, it's not anything new or it's not anything revolutionary. Um, the use of probiotics is discussed all the time. 
And I'm going to give you a nice a reference to go to for you and your patients when you're really thinking about certain probiotics that you may want to use for certain disease processes or for health overall. But the researchers um, in this field and the gastroenterologists are not really sold on the specific recommendations for using probiotics to uh, maintain a healthy colon and microbiome. So here's the gluten study that I talked about. So this was published, this wasn't published, this was shared at the uh, 70th American Association of Neurology Conference. And the researchers wanted to know in, um, how many of you have heard of gluten neuropathy before? Oh, are you a neurologist? Yes. <laughs> Neurologists know about it. Did you, are you familiar with this study? So, um, they took uh, 60 patients that had a diagnosis of gluten neuropathy. So they did serological studies. They diagnosed gluten neuropathy in these individuals. And of these individuals, 50% of them had painful gluten neuropathy. So not all gluten neuropathy is painful, but in this subset, 50% were. And um, what they found was um, they, uh, they did, again, a battery of tests, so um, pain, uh, pain scales, uh, neuropathy scales, and mental health index um, scales. And what they found was the patients with painless gluten neuropathy were more likely to be on a strict gluten-free diet to begin with, right? So of that 60 patients, 30 that, were, that had painful neuropathy, the other 30 um, tended to already be on a gluten. So cell either were recommended by their clinician or were already self-limiting um, the amount of gluten that they were taking in. Um, patients with painful gluten neuropathy presented with significantly worse mental health scores, again, you know, that, that makes sense to us. And uh, multivariate analysis showed that a strict gluten-free diet was associated with lowering the odds of uh, peripheral neuropathic pain up to about 90%. So patients, um, if they already have gluten neuropathy or you're trying to prevent a gluten neuropathy um, uh, development, if you can reduce the amount of gluten in a person's diet, it's going to be protective, right? Even in those individuals that don't already have a gluten, um, a gluten allergy or haven't presented with gluten neuropathy. So pain is very prevalent in gluten neuropathy. It's associated with poor mental health scores and a strict um, gluten-free diet may be protective. Um, I, I, again, it's really hard, I think, to make those um, demands of your patient. But again, I challenge you all to do that six-week gluten reduction trial. Um, but I th even reducing by uh, a 50% or a 60% or a 70% is, um, is going to be very uh, protective and healthy promoting for your patients. A little bit about somatic pain. So we talked about visceral pain, talked about neuropathic pain. Let's talk more um, about some somatic pain um, situations. So this isn't bacteria per se, but it goes on the lines of um, just diet and nutrition. So this was a really interesting study that was published in 2014, looking at the difference of uh, Say the word for me, curcuma, um, and uh, can't get the word out, and ibuprofen. So it took um, two sets of individuals and uh, all had um, osteoarthritis um, pain. And they gave uh, one set of individuals 1,200 milligrams a day of ibuprofen for four weeks, and the other got the supplement for four weeks. And then they measured um, pain scores, functionality um, scores through the Roma, uh, Womack score scale, and then um, they assessed adverse effects. And what they found was that 
that the pain scales and the Womax scales scores were pretty similar in both study groups, right? So equally, the patients on the ibuprofen or the supplement did, um, did, did well, uh, but the adverse effects were much less in the supplement group, right? So the folks that had, um, and we talked about, I did talk to you about the use of um, NSAIDs and PPIs as being a detrimental to the gut microbiome and increase the risk of uh, dysbiosis. So if you have an option or you have a choice or you want to entertain going down that route um, with an individual, you may be able to capture just as much pain relief um, without using uh, the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatories. Again, this didn't take it out for years and years and years. This was only a four-week study, but um, it was pretty um, impressive. So another study um, uh, looking at arthritis. So this was actually, this is a paper that was presented at the Osteoarthritis Research Society um, in 2017 here in Vegas. They may have even been in this room. <clears throat> the ghosts of Osteoarthritis Research Society passed. And uh, they used uh, uh, genetic sequencing. What they wanted to find out is in a subset of patients that they were looking at, if there was some genetic predisposition or if in these individuals that had osteoarthritis, if, they, if their gut microbiome looked different than those that didn't. And they really didn't find a difference. So they looked at almost 1,500 patients, and they didn't find a difference in the, um, the genetic makeup or in the, uh, the microbiome per se. But what they found common in all groups is that, um, that uh, in, in the, the knee um, individuals that they looked at, uh, streptococcus and then a, a clostridial bacteria in the hip um, osteoarthritis patients, that in these patients that, um, let's see if this build out, no. In these patients that then went on to um, live unhealthy behaviors, so, um, uh, poor dietary choices, high gluten, uh, were sedentary, high uh, stress, um, uh, and such, that the, the presence of this bacteria um, caused a low-level inflammatory process that put patients at higher risk for debilitating uh, inflammatory osteoarthritis in the future. Does that make sense? So it was interesting. Again, nothing that you can take home with you other than counseling of your patients that we need to look at our diet, we need to look at our stress reduction, we need to look at activity, all of the things that you know we really we discuss with our patients and we hit home about. So there are bacteria that live in our gut, potentially pathogenic bacteria, that when they sit there in a normal, healthy microbiome, then they don't cause any harm. But if you, if, if you have long-term dysbiosis, even subclinically, that, that these bacteria become active and put patients at higher risk for osteoarthritis advancement in later years. I think you have to be kind of a research nerd to really get excited about that. Um, but I thought it was very interesting. Uh, 2013, there was a um, study that was published looking at um, stool samples. So they took uh, 114 um, stool samples. Yay, that's fun. I'm not that interested in research. And um, they uh, underwent uh, genetic uh, sequencing of these stool samples uh, from patients with osteoarthritis and uh, controls. And what they found was that there was a presence of uh, Provotella uh, copri uh, was strongly correlated um, that they found in these stool samples with disease and new onset uh, untreated osteo uh, rheumatoid arthritis. That an increase in this bacteria abundance correlated with a, uh, a decrease in the beneficial or the healthy 
um, bacteria in the, in the microbiome. And that this work uh, identified that there's a potential role for this bacteria in pathogenesis of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. All right, we're coming to the, the tail end here. Five minutes. Um, they, these are two um, resources for you that I would, if you continue to be interested in this topic to any degree that you go on and look at. There's a plethora of information, more um, research studies that have been done answers a lot of the questions. Um, one's an international society, one is a American society. There's a lot of good work that continues to be done looking at the, the health, well-being, and the um, manipulation of the microbiome in health and wellness in general. This is the resource that I want to leave you with um, when you have questions about, and you will, uh, about what probiotics, what prebiotics would be preferable. So our patients, for all intents and purposes, want an easy fix. They want a pill. They want something that they can do right now. And, um, and you should have all these slides, by the way. Um, feel free to take pictures, but you should have access to these slides. Um, and and this, this resource may be able to help answer some of those questions. Again, the jury's out. Um, gastroenterologists don't have any feeling one way or another. However, you start talking to individuals and they'll tell you what their personal favorite is, um, and these are clinicians, but it, it just, we don't have that abundance and evidence in human models to start recommending certain probiotics or prebiotics beyond what I talked to you about in terms of the health and the wellness and the well-being and the gluten-free diets and, and being mindful of uh, inflammatory food intake. Again, not widespread, no insurance is gonna pay for this, but there are, um, grow, there's growing interest in um, actually uh, having folks undergo uh, specific clinical microbiome testing to evaluate um, the health, wellness, and the presence of certain pathogenic bacterias. And um, I, I'm not familiar, someone in this room may be, if, if you can get this type of test covered by insurance, but again, it's not mainstream. But if you have a patient um, that uh, continues to do poorly, and you are really concerned, and you send them, say, to their gastroenterologist, they may have the availability to do a specific screening study or a blood study that shows um, the kind of the health of their microbiome. Okay, thank you. So here's Heather Tick's um, contact information. So again, she's very active on social media. She's very inspirational. Maybe she'll come give this talk next year. And um, she... Uh, she does a lot. She hails from Washington State, and she's faculty, I believe, on, well, it says right here. She's a faculty at Integrative Pain Medicine, clinical associate professor of family medicine, and uh, she's up in, in the Pacific Northwest. So take home points. The microbiota is a diverse and has a, a definitive effect on health, wellness, and pain modulation. There's bidirectional um, speak between the microbiome and the gut uh, through this gut-brain axis. Um, recommendation is to use diet uh, and, and, and exercise and stress reduction to modulate the microbio, microbiota. The uh, jury's still out on specific supplements to recommend. Um, our microbiota is constantly changing. We, um, as I mentioned to you, have a set microbiome that's developed in the first few months of life. But you can change something that's permanent by continuing to feed it right? So you can make it worse, you can make it better. So if you have a healthy microbiome at um, six years of age or 16 or 60 years of age, and you keep feeding probiotics, you're going to, you know, change it transiently, but if you do it long enough, you'll continue to um, have an impact. 
practical ways of modulating the microbiota, um, consuming low allergenic, low inflammatory diets, high uh, fiber diets, um, diverse in the diets, and also um, stress and um, exercise. All right, well, I want to thank you for your attention. You've been a very uh, good audience. Nobody got up and left. And, uh, and I'll entertain questions for five minutes, but then we need to get out of this room so the next speaker can come. And I'm here all week, so thank you. So do I think that individuals that have had um, surgeries on their intestines are at higher risk for dysbiosis? Is that, was that your question? I'm just wondering how that all fits in. Yeah. So I think that it, it, it can be incredibly impactful. So if you have um, certain bacteria that are presented, this is, this is definitely a, you know, a ghost-filled room today. Yeah. <laughs> that it, it, it can definitely be impactful. So though, again, those are patients that you're gonna want to um, be mindful at counseling in terms of their risk factors, um, what they're using, you know, not using certain um, chemicals that are gonna put them at even higher risk. That's not to say that someone that doesn't have a, col a colostomy or somebody that hasn't had bowel surgery or bypass, gastric bypass, can't have a, a healthy microbiome. But they're at higher risk for um, having dysbiosis or leaky gut just because of the manipulation of the GI system. Absolutely, yeah. I don't know if there's been any studies really looking at the difference in those patient population. That may be in the GI literature somewhere, but I'm not sure. I haven't heard anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I think those are patients you just have to be a lot more cognizant in terms of, you know, what their, their symptoms are and, and treating them as such. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, so I think it's not going to be harmful. So the question is about the use of over-the-counter um, probiotics. So there's a lot out there. Um, the advocates for using on a regular basis over-the-counter probiotics will say that you want live bacteria as much as possible and you want a diversity in bacteria, right? So um, lactobacillus, you know, bifidiobacteria. So you want large culture size and you want a diversity of, um, of bacteria in the probiotic. That being said, do you have to do that? And, and if a patient is um, ailing, are you going to solve the problem just with that over-the-counter uh, probiotic? The jury's out on that. Um, but if they're willing to pay for it, it was, it, I, for me, it's like akin to those folks that had osteoarthritis and were being counseled to use um, uh, glucosamine and chondritin, right? Well, you know, there may have been some small evidence, but for individuals that have um, any kind of um, symptoms, looking at their diet, looking at their overall health and wellness, um, a, thing of yogurt in the morning might suffice, right, and not have to get them a, a probiotic. But I don't think it's going to hurt. So the one I use um, is called Align. Align. That's who the counter. Yeah. Keep in line. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Sure. 
Are you aware of any research on the impact of GMOs on the gut microbiome? The effect of chemo? GMOs. Oh, GMOs. Because chemo would be a problem too. Um, so nothing, nothing specifically that I could speak to on any you know kind of confidence. Um, do you? Where do you work? Okay. And what what area do you work well, in? I'm a psychologist. Okay. Okay. So um, now I haven't I haven't read anything that really has kind of looked at the microbiome and GMOs in terms of specific you know kind of negativity or or you know helpfulness or anything like that. Not yet. Not yet. Thank you. All right, guys. You've been a great audience. Enjoy the rest of the conference.